morning. My name is Rick Meyer. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community. I'll be reading scripture this morning, which comes to us from uh, 1 John. And if you're using a blue uh, pew Bible that's in front of you, that can be found on page 1021. We'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and then chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, you little, now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because he shall, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Please take a couple minutes and sit and reflect upon this, his word. Pray with me. God, we have the privilege of contemplating <clears throat> this incredible truth today that when we come to faith in Christ, that everything else that we experience, um, <clears throat> wisdom and truth and 
forgiveness, even eternal life. They serve the purpose of falling under fellowship with you. You're brought into this deep and living relationship with you and with your people. And there are things that are frightening about that fellowship. There are things that are sobering about it. But Lord, this is our hope that we come to know you and become your children by your grace. So I pray that you would help us see the goodness of this fellowship today. I pray that you would uh, make any words that are just mine fall to the ground, blow away and not be remembered. But would your words remain and would they change us? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was talking with a friend recently who, he goes to a different church. Um, He was in worship on a Sunday, and while they were there, a guy got up and started sharing his testimony. And the guy, as he was sharing, began talking about um, coming to realize that he had a a struggle with abusing alcohol that had become a bigger problem than he could handle, than he could deal with. And so he had begun repenting of that, turning away from it, and seeking help, and he as part of his testimony, was bringing that before the church. And my friend, as he was sitting and listening, all of a sudden he said he was cut to the heart. Because as he heard this guy sharing his struggle and his story, he realized that he was in the same place my friend was. That he had begun abusing alcohol to try to manage some stress and some difficulties with his work life and his family life. And it was getting out of hand for him. So my friend had turned away from it. He began repenting of that. Um, This was a few months before. But an interesting thing is, he didn't just want to do that privately. He found that he wanted to tell me about it as well and tell other people about it as well. It's not because he wanted to tell the entire world about it. He's not that kind of open book person. But he wanted us to know about it, me to know about it, because of the friendship that we have. And he didn't want to tell me about it so I could excuse it and say, ah, nah, that's no big deal. Um, He wanted me to hear it as a confession because he wanted it to be part of restoring our relationship. That because of the, the fellowship that we have, the friendship that we have, he wanted to trust me with that. And it deepened our relationship that he trusted me with that confession. See, that's a theme, a theme that we're gonna be looking at today. For the next few weeks, with one break for a guest preacher, we're gonna look at this letter that Rick read from called, First John. So this was written by uh, John, who was one of Jesus's apostles, who also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Um, just as a quick side note, there are some people who don't think the same John wrote all three of these, but the evidence for it is really compelling. And if you have questions about it, I'd love to talk with you about it after. But you know, that's um, kind of where I'm going with it. Um, so John wrote this letter several decades into the spread of Christianity. This was maybe 40 or 50 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. John was um, the only apostle of the original 11 who died a natural death in old age. Um, All the others, church tradition maintained, were martyred. They were killed early on. And so John was uh, the longest living apostle. And he wrote this letter to some churches that were being troubled by people who had separated themselves from the apostles and their community and were teaching other things about who Jesus was and what he wanted for us. They were saying that those guys... Sure, they were there with him back in the day, but they don't understand him rightly. We do, and we'll tell you how to live. 
And so John is writing to this church because uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's because, you know, so many of the apostles had been uh, killed for their faith by this point. But this church is being kind of affected or maybe at least troubled by these false teachers. And so John is writing to them to say, no, this is the truth. The truth that we saw, the truth that we felt like we saw in those first few verses, the truth we touched with our hands that was manifested to us, that is really who Jesus was. And what we've told you he said is really what he said and what he wanted for us. We need to stay in that light. So in in several other places in his gospel and in this letter, he calls kind of that whole summary of who Jesus was in his teaching, the light. And he says, you've got to live in that light that has dawned. And so that's what we've titled this sermon series is living in the light. And so John wants us to stay with it, to stay in the light now, because it was the light when you believed it. It was the light when it happened, and it's still the light today. We're going to look at this letter for five weeks, um, but because John wrote in kind of a unique way, we're not going to do just chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and so on. That's what we usually do when we go through a book of the Bible. So we went through Luke, and we basically went episode by episode through the Gospel of Luke, following one story after another, because the sequence is really important. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote his letters in a similar way, where he kind of builds this logical outline, where there's point A, which leads to point B, which leads to point C, and so forth. But that's not how John writes. John writes in kind of this, like, cycling style, where he takes these themes, and he sort of circles through them. And so you get sort of theme A, then theme B, then sort of B and A together, and then theme C. And so he kind of cycles through stuff in his letter. And so we're going to cover this by drawing out five themes from the Gospel of John, which is why we read from chapter 1 and then a bit of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so we're going to see five themes that John covers in his letter. Now, you may have also noticed, if you were in the lobby, that we have uh, new bookmarks out on the info table and under the TV out there. Um, these are, this is our scripture memory challenge for the next few weeks. It's a passage from 1 John chapter 4. Um, we'll be using this as our affirmation of faith on days when we don't have communion, when we do the Apostles' Creed. But uh, we'd invite you to grab one of these and practice memorizing this with us over the next few weeks, just to challenge ourselves to have more scripture in our hearts. Um, that passage contains most of the themes that we're looking at this week, this series. Um, but today's theme is fellowship, like you saw from the sermon title slide. Let's look at verses three and four again. So John writes, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John says the light that we saw, that we told you about, that many of us gave our lives telling you about by this point, He said, we told you about that so you could have fellowship with us. A fellowship that's not just with us, a human thing, that's fine, sure, but it's a fellowship that's with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the first thing that we want to see about fellowship, is that the ultimate goal of Christianity is joyful fellowship. So that's sort of, there's a point one that you're writing down. The ultimate goal of Christianity is joyful fellowship fellowship. See, whatever you may have heard that Christianity is about, whether it's wisdom for living well, or holiness, or forgiveness of sins, or even eternal life, all of those things are great. All of those things are good, and they're all part of it, but they're all part of it under the umbrella of this living eternal fellowship that we have with God and with his church, with his people. 
They all serve those things. Just like the goal of planning a wedding isn't having a great ring or wearing a beautiful dress or having an awesome ceremony or a reception with great food and dancing. All of those things are great. All of those things can be a ton of fun or they can be really stressful. But all of those things are great. Uh, but they all serve the purpose of a marriage, of a new union, a lifelong union relationship that begins and goes on, we believe, not just through this life, but in a sense on into eternity as well. So in the same way, that's what Christianity is ultimately about. It's about coming into fellowship with God. Now, we don't use the word fellowship that often, and we might struggle with it a little bit to kind of envision it or get excited about it. Uh, you might think of the Lord of the Rings if you're a Tolkien fan, you know, some dudes on a quest. Um, or maybe it sounds kind of like a dry social occasion at a church. You know, um, it, it can be hard to get excited about. But the reality behind the word is incredible. And we can see a great example of it in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. And so let's actually turn there, if you've got a Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have the blue Bibles, it's on page, starts on page 260. So 2 Samuel 9, page 260. This is a story about King David. So David, by this point, he has become the king because God took the throne away from Saul, who was Israel's first king. Saul belonged to a whole other dynasty, so a different royal family than David. They're not related. David didn't inherit it. It was taken from Saul, given to David, um, and now David is king. Saul hated David, but Saul's son Jonathan and David had this deep friendship, and Jonathan had actually made a covenant that he would serve David as Israel's true king. At this point, both Saul and Jonathan are dead. That's how David became king. Uh, and in verse 1, we read, David said, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David says, in other words, Because of my friendship with Jonathan, though he belonged to this rival dynasty and his father hated me and tried to kill me, can we find any relatives, children, nephews, nieces that I can honor in Jonathan's place? They find one living relative. His name is Mephibosheth. He's crippled due to a childhood injury that we learned about a few chapters before. And he's in hiding. Now the text doesn't say it, but being in hiding makes a lot of sense when you think about it. See, he's the last member of a royal line that has been deposed and lost the throne. And if you watch any TV shows about real or imagined, you know, like dynastic successions or fights over the throne, you know that one of the first things you do when you become the new ruler is you sort of tie up some loose ends by making sure that there aren't any rivals to your throne hanging around to try to take it from you. That's just part of like, you know, getting job security for yourself. Um, it's a mess. And so that's what Mephibosheth expects to happen when David finds him. So if you look at verse 5 in the story, you can see, let me read a few verses. It says, King David sent and brought Mephibosheth from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So David takes this man who has nothing to offer him. 
not just nothing to offer him, who could be an enemy, a rival to his own dynasty, his own power, who's physically vulnerable, who is in, literally in his physical power right at this point. And instead of killing him, he restores his family's land to him, and he invites him to eat at his table. Verse 11 says that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He goes from nothing, not just nothing, an enemy, potential enemy, to being treated like one of the king's own children for the rest of his life, fully restored to the livelihood that his family had. He becomes practically the son of the king. He doesn't do anything to deserve it, and he doesn't even do anything to ask for it. He doesn't come and ask for a royal favor. This is something that David initiates to him all the way. That's what fellowship looks like. When we talk about fellowship with God, that's what we mean, that we are nothing by nature to God. In fact, the Bible says we're enemies of him, that we are moving in different directions from, he, it, from him. If he's light, we tend to like the darkness by nature. But God, by his grace, has gone after us and brought us into this relationship with him to bring us into his family, to bring us to his table and make us not just like his sons and daughters, like Mephibosheth was with David. Rick read in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us. We should be called children of God, and so we are. Mephibosheth became like one of David's sons. We become God's sons and daughters, his children, part of his family by his grace. That's fellowship. That's the image behind the word that we want to see. Um, it's, the, it's interesting that there's a Hebrew word that means fellowship and could have been translated to this Greek word here, but they're almost like afraid to use it in the Old Testament of the relationship that people have with God. It never really says. There are people who have fellowship with one another, but you don't really get we have fellowship with God in the Old Testament because of God's absolute holiness and our you know, humility. And so there's a covenant we have, but it's not fellowship. It's not described in the intimate term that it is in the New Testament because God hadn't done all the incredible things that he did in the New Testament to bring us into this close relationship with him that Jesus did. A theologian named J.I. Packer comments on this truth like this. He says, you, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well or at all. See, the goal of Christianity is fellowship. It's this union, this intimate relationship with our heavenly father and with his family, the church. It's a union that begins now. So Jesus said in one of his prayers, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And it extends on after death into eternity when God resurrects us on the restored creation. It's a family life that never ends. The word fellowship also gets used again and again to talk about the community of Christians. When the uh, church begins in Acts 2, in Acts 2, 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, 
And it goes on to describe how they were in each other's homes. They were caring for each other's needs. They were supporting each other and encouraging each other and rejoicing with one another that they were devoted not just in a vertical relationship to God, but in a horizontal relationship with one another that's described as fellowship. They have a new family, like a new body. That doesn't mean that it's easy or painless, you know, like singing kumbaya around a campfire. That's in the New Testament itself is about how hard fellowship is and how painful it can be. So it's not, you know, it doesn't, uh, it's not naive about this, but there's this deep commitment that the Christians have to sharing their lives with one another because of their common fellowship with Christ. And this pushes us to ask, in light of that J.I. Packer quote first, you know, is this the relationship that I have with God? When I think about my prayer life, um, when I think about my moral striving, when I think about my efforts to love people like Jesus did, is it kind of under the, on the foundation of knowing God as my heavenly dad who loves me a million times better than the best earthly father could? Or is it something else? Because if it's not, if that's not, if I don't have the security of that relationship, then I'm gonna live the Christian life either with the hollowness of striving without having any kind of internal joy and fullness, or I'm gonna feel like I'm on this treadmill where there's a carrot out there somewhere that maybe I'll get one day if I run hard enough for long enough. Um, neither of those are a life of fellowship with God as our Father. Neither of those are grounded in the grace of God and the family relationship that we have. When we recognize that our faith begins with fellowship, with that intimate union, and the whole thing is about growing that relationship deeper, it changes everything. It infuses the entire thing, even the hard things, with joy, because everything we do is growing us closer to our heavenly dad, our perfect older brother Jesus, and our brothers and sisters who are the church. The, the joyful things help us see and enjoy his goodness, we get great weather on the beach or a wonderful meal or an incredible time of community and fellowship those are good gifts that let us see god's goodness if they're hard things if we go through suffering or difficulty or experience conflict and then reconciliation then all we're doing is walking in the footsteps of our savior who suffered on the way to glory and showed us that that's what life looks like they don't alienate us from god they draw us closer to him it all deepens our fellowship with him. And it also pushes us to ask, is this the relationship that I have with God's people? Do I have this familial relationship with a Christian community? It doesn't have to be every single person I've ever met, but do I have a community of people that I'm sharing life with? Because we want that for you. The summer socials that, uh, you know, I mentioned our first one coming up, they're designed to help people begin to build those relationships or deepen those relationships if you don't have them. So we have, we're trying to have them for people in all kind of ages and stages through the summer, and we'll talk about more of them as they come. But especially as we you know, go through the summer and get closer to the fall, we want you to have the joy of fellowship with other Christians, and we want to do everything we can to help you find that. And so please come talk to me if that's something that you would like and aren't sure you have or aren't sure where to begin, because that's something that we'd love to help you with. The ultimate goal of Christianity is fellowship. Fellowship with God fellowship with his church that's the first thing we wanted to look at but like we talked about in the beginning john was writing because there were people who had separated themselves from that fellowship and set themselves up as rival teachers 
with rival, you know, like truths, rival things to say about Jesus and about what it means to know him and walk with him. Rival examples of what it meant to live in his light. And so all through this letter, John has to make these distinctions to say, this is what the light really is. That it's not anything goes. You know, whatever you think about God is enough. Whatever you do is fine. And he says, this is what it really means to live in it. In the same way that I couldn't have fellowship with my wife and also date other women, we can't have fellowship with God and not walk in his light. Those two things don't go together. They don't fit. And so in the rest of chapter one, John gives us one condition for Christian fellowship. Fellowship requires walking in the light. Fellowship requires walking in the light. Let's read verses five through nine. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John says there are conditions for fellowship, both with God and with other Christians. It's not something that everyone has automatically or that we can have just on our own terms. And in this passage, he focuses on uh, a moral or an existential condition for that fellowship. He introduces it by saying in verse five, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, all through the Bible, God is associated with light. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light. It's the first thing that he creates at the very beginning of Genesis 1. And when God the Son came into the world, kind of like we talked about already, it says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. The two main things that light means in this context are holiness and truth. So light means holiness and light means truth. You can hear the connection in this passage from the Gospel of John, so his biography of Jesus, uh, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Let me read these verses real quick. This is uh, Jesus speaking. He says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, because God is light, he forces a choice on us. To live in his light means to live by his truth and his holiness. It's to live on his terms, not on terms that we set for ourselves. And if someone doesn't want those terms, if they want to keep on doing things that belong to the darkness instead of the light, then they can't have the real God. Just like the covenant, lifelong covenant of marriage can't coexist with the ongoing life of a bachelor, those things can't belong together. Neither can fellowship with God who is light and walking, kind of a consistent pattern of living in spiritual darkness. The false teachers that John was writing against seem to have been saying that you could have fellowship with God and a life of darkness at the same time. 
So that's why he gives these if we say statements in verse 6 and verse 8. They're sort of things that these false teachers would have been either teaching explicitly or basically saying. So it says, if you look at verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, these teachers were saying one or both of these things. Either one, that you can live however you want because God doesn't care. It doesn't matter. Love who you want. Hate who you want. Do whatever you want. Spend your money however you want. Treat your neighbor however you want. You're in the light. It's fine. It's all good. And they're either saying there's no such thing as sin or that whatever it is you're doing that's contrary to God's light, it doesn't count. That you don't have any sin. You're fine. It's all good. You live however you want. There's nothing to repent of. There's nothing to apologize for. Uh, it's a good thing this doesn't sound familiar at all, right? Um, but John's response to this is stark. So he says, if we say we have fellowship with the eternal, all good, all powerful God who is light and we walk in darkness, we lie. We are not practicing. We're not speaking the truth. If we say we have no sin, if we have nothing to be sorry for, nothing to turn from, nothing to change. We're lying to ourselves. He said we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. We're not slightly off the mark there. We're completely in the dark. So what does this mean, we have to ask? If fellowship requires living in the light, what does that look like? And that's our last thing we're going to look at today. And it's a really important question for a number of reasons. But part of the reason is because the two dominant cultures in our country today will give answers to this question that are incomplete, and we would say dangerously incomplete. See, the traditional or conservative culture that's still kind of here and active in the South would say that living in the light mainly means having a good social reputation. It means that people think well of you. You're a hard worker. You keep your house clean and tidy. You have a neat-looking yard. You know, you're a good neighbor, a good HOA member who complains about the appropriate things and holds up the appropriate rules. And whatever sins or struggles you have, you handle those behind closed doors. You keep those secret because that's your business. It's not anybody else's business. And so that's kind of that, that answer for that, that if, you're, if you have a good social reputation, then you're living in the light. Don't talk about what's going on in your soul because no one wants to deal with that. On the other side, in kind of the liberal or progressive culture today, they would say that living in the light means being radically authentic about who you are. That the guilt and shame that might make you not want to share something are the product of this sort of oppressive social culture. And so what you need to do is throw all that off and say, this is me. I think from that, uh, what was the Baz Luhrmann movie that came out a while back? Um, you say, this is who I am, accept me as I am, exactly like me with nothing to change. So that's sort of the, the counter other side message of it that they would say living in the light means. So our passage here incorporates elements kind of related to both of those things, but it does so in a way that transcends and corrects both of them. It's bigger than both. See, the clue to what it means, living in the light as a condition of fellowship with God, can be found in verse 9. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, walking in the light, it doesn't mean pretending we don't have any sins, like the traditional culture would say. And it doesn't mean pretending our sins aren't sins, that everything we are is really totally fine if it's understood properly. Walking in the light starts with confession, with saying, 
this is really who I am and what's going on in me. But I know it doesn't belong in the light. I know that it doesn't fit with who God is and who I'm supposed to be. And it needs to be forgiven and repented of and changed. Not excused, but it needs to be known. So we don't believe that confession is a sacrament like the Catholic Church does, where you have to you know, list all of your sins and receive absolution from a priest. It doesn't work that way. We also don't think you have to confess everything to everyone. Um, you know, my opening illustration was a guy who had the courage to share part of his story with the whole congregation. That's not what we think everyone has to do. But what confession means is that we need to have someone that I have a deep enough fellowship with, with not just with God, with a spouse, or with a Christian community, that I can be fully honest with them and they can help me experience forgiveness and also experience repentance and transformation to help me walk in the light instead of in the dark. The offering song that we sang was called Then at Last. Um, it was a new song that we haven't done here before as a church. And it's based on Psalm 32, which captures the same spirit. See, we may tend to assume that the Christian view of confession or of living in the light is sort of is exactly overlapped with that traditional one. That Christians are people who seem clean and tidy because they, you know, they, they clean themselves up and put on their nice clothes to come here and smile and be happy on a Sunday morning. But that's not who we really are. That's not what our faith really is. Um, because in that path, confession is the path to grief. It's the path to shame and embarrassment, to share who I am. And it would be the last thing that we want to do. But like the song says, and that Psalm 32 says, holding on to our sin in the dark makes us waste away. It kills our soul, it shrivels us, and it keeps us from fellowship. Confession, bringing those things into the light, uh, not to be excused or celebrated, but to be forgiven and for us to begin turning from it. This is where we find real healing and a real community. There's a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote an excellent book on community called Life Together. It's a little thin book, easy read. It's a great you know, summer read if you're looking for something. But in it, he writes this. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. To be alone with your sin, even if you're part of the outward fellowship of the church, is to have no real fellowship at all. It's to be living a life of loneliness until we join the fellowship of sinners. Bonhoeffer goes on to write, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness, it poisons the whole being of a person. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. See, one thing we want for you, if you're part of a church, our church, is to have a fellowship of believers that you can experience this true communion with, that you know and you trust enough that you can confess to them the messy stuff, the stuff that's going on in your heart that you know or maybe you think isn't quite right, but that you're not sure how to deal with. 
we want that for you because that's where true fellowship happens. When we come together in the fellowship of God's grace as sinners, that's what Bonhoeffer says, to experience the fellowship of sinners who are redeemed and forgiven. So that often, you know, in the, the real nitty gritty looks like having a community group where I have, you know, the men of that group that I really share with, not even the men and women both, but um, we want that for you and we want to help you find that. And so if that's not something that you have, please do talk to me after church, email me. Um, I'd love to help you see what we can do there. But this fellowship, like we talked about at the beginning, this is the goal. This is what God wants for us. He wants this joyful union with him and with the church that begins now and goes on into eternity. And it consists of this fellowship of people who are saved by his grace and who live by his mercy not by our own reputation, our own pride. That's what we want for you.